I want to share with you this morning on a text of Scripture that I think is often misunderstood and has such a profound message for us that I, I want you to, to turn to it in your Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. You know, I heard a cute story. I was in Texas this week uh, speaking at the Texas State Southern Baptist Pastors Conference uh, down in the Second Baptist Church of Houston. And um, one of the speakers was talking about the influence of preachers and how they, how they influence little kids. And he said this lady uh, told him the story. She went to the supermarket with her little four-year-old son. And, you know, he said, if you, want to, uh, if you want to try to view the world through a four-year-old, a good, a good way is to imagine how he feels when he goes to a supermarket. The first thing you do with him is put him in an iron cage, right? And then the second thing is that you get everything you want, he gets nothing, right? You just go down every aisle picking off exactly what you want. When you come to the cookies, this lady told the story, when, when they came to the cookies, this little guy said, I want those chocolate chip cookies. His mother said, get your hands off those cookies. You're not having those cookies. You don't need those cookies. And down the next aisle, he says, but I want those chocolate chip cookies. Sit down, you're not getting those chocolate chip cookies. And she's pulling off everything in the world. And not only does she get all she wants, but he has to sit on it. You know. About three or four aisles later, I want those chocolate chip cookies. And she whacks him again and tells him to sit down. Finally, he gets to the cash register. One final plea. This lady said he stood up in the cart and said, In Jesus' name, give me those chocolate chip cookies. <laughs> so that's the great impact that media preachers have on little children. Somebody said if you ask in Jesus' name, you get whatever you want. So I figured he'd try it, right? You can try that, see how it works. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 to 10, has some tremendous things to say to us, and, and I, I want to follow through on these things. It, it talks about the sufficiency of God's grace. The great statement is in verse 9, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. I want to talk a little bit about relationships today, and I want to talk about how those relationships affect our life, and how in the midst of those relationships we are dependent on the grace of God. People can make life very difficult for us. I've always said ministry would be very easy if there were no people in the church. Uh, it would be real simple, you know. But wherever you have people, you have problems. Uh, one fellow that I know said, I'm looking for a pastorate, but I don't want a church with any problem people in it. And I said, well, lots of luck. I said, if you find one, don't go there, uh, because they'll be perfect and you'll only foul it up. Uh, if you want to find a church, if you want to find a church that is perfect and has people who are no problem, you better pastor a funeral chapel. Because if you get into a church with people, you're going to have problems. Jonathan Edwards, I was reading his biography this past summer. Jonathan Edwards pastored his church for 22 years, at the end of which they voted him out, even though he had led the Great American Awakening and had a tremendous effect on all of the United States. His congregation voted him out of the church after 22 years. They so smeared his reputation that he couldn't get another church to take him. He was the most profound theologian, uh, most prolific and gifted journalist and writer in, in America, and some say one of the top three in American history. 
genius, a godly man, gifted. Nonetheless, the church voted him out, ruined his reputation. The only place he could go and minister was to a mission to Indians. He spent the rest of his years reducing his profound truth to the level of a third grade class so he could communicate simple gospel truth to Indians. It was unbelievable what happened to him because people turned on him. It can be like that in life. I remember one time going into a staff meeting some years ago and saying to a group of guys that were sitting there, I said, I just want to thank you for being my friends. You don't know how much it means to have you as friends. To which one of them replied immediately, if you think we're your friends, buddy, you've got something else coming. And I kind of fell back in my chair and I said, wait, what did you say? He said, if you think we're your friends, you've got something else coming. And then he proceeded to lead a small mutiny that ended up in about five guys leaving our church staff and causing a major rift in the church. It was a devastating time for me. It was one of those times when you're rocked to the very core because the people you think love you the most, trust you the most, and stand with you the most turn on you. That happens to people. That's part of life. Unfulfilled relationships cause people the deepest pain in life apart from personal sin and personal guilt. Unfulfilled relationships are the most devastating thing that we experience. And I think in the text that I want to draw you to, Paul talks about how God's grace is sufficient for those unfulfilled relationships. People are going to hurt you. People are going to wound you. People are going to devastate you. They're going to bring great pain into your life. And the deeper you work your way into their life, the greater the potential for them to, to really cut you. That's part of life. Frankly, no disease and no pain and no trial and no, re no difficulty is as severe as rejection, as false accusation, misrepresentation, hatred, disloyalty, betrayal, all of that. But how do you deal with that? That's part of life. How do you deal with the problems that people bring into your world? A little bit of background to this text. The Apostle Paul had ministered for 18 months in the city of Corinth. Corinth was a wretched place. In fact, to Corinthianize was a verb that meant to go to bed with a prostitute. That's how immorality was associated with the city of Corinth. It was just part of the culture there. Paul had an immense effect on the city, built a church there, the church as we know, the Corinthian church, and God had blessed those 18 months there, and God had put those people into his heart. Paul is now gone, and out of that congregation have arisen some people who are disloyal to Paul. They're smearing his reputation. They're accusing him of not loving them. They're accusing him of abusing them, using them for personal gain. They're accusing him of of teaching false information. They're accusing him of all kinds of things. And this little accusation party is led by some person who uh, sort of purports that he is greater than Paul. In fact, they're, they're almost called super apostles by the apostle himself. In chapter 9, 10, 11, 12, the apostle Paul unfolds some of that, particularly in 10, 11, and 12. He talks about the difficulty of false accusation, false accusers, people on the attack against him, how hard that is for him to handle. And he writes this letter back to tell the Corinthians that he loves them, that he cares about them, that he's been honest with them, he's done everything he could, and no matter what they think about him, he, he hasn't changed in how he feels. In fact, he says to them, I love you even if you hate me, the more I love you. 
So he's facing disloyalty, betrayal, a traitor who's leading a movement against him. This is the deepest trouble that I think Paul ever experienced. I think it's much more severe than some of the other things he experienced. Go back to chapter 11 for a moment before we look at chapter 12. And look at verse 23 of chapter 11. He says he's been in labors, far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times 39 lashes with a whip on his back. Three times beaten with rods. Those were long sticks tied in a bundle, thrashing the flesh. Once stoned and left for dead. Three times shipwrecked, night and a day spent in the deep. Frequent journeys, dangers from rivers, robbers, countrymen, Gentiles, dangers in the city, in the wilderness, in the sea, and among false brethren, labor, hardship, sleepless nights, hunger, thirst, without food, cold, exposure. He had been through unbelievable physical trauma. But notice verse 28. Beyond all of that is the daily pressure on me because of my concern for the church. Greater than all of the physical pain was the tremendous difficulty of working with people because the potential for wounding was so severe. When we come to chapters 10, 11, and 12, and even 13 here, we find the Apostle Paul writing us the most pensive, the most pathetic, the most passionate portion of all of his letters as he unfolds the pain of his own heart. This is the deepest pain he ever experienced, and it didn't come from whippings and being beaten and being stoned and all of that. It came from unrequited love. It came from unfulfilled relationships. He was enduring the pain of being unloved, unappreciated, untrusted. His love was maligned and unrequited. His integrity was brought into question. His fruitfulness was denied. His honesty was attacked. His sacrificial service was rejected. His credentials were scoffed at and his authority was mocked by people he had given his life to. Somebody was leading this parade. Somebody was in charge of all of this. If you go back to chapter 10, and read through it. I'm not going to take the time. And on into the first half of chapter 11, you'll find that he identifies some people who were leading this movement against him. So here you have this dear, sacrificial, patient, humble apostle who is being repeatedly battered by people in the Corinthian church who are falsely accusing him. The opposition is very strong. The false accusations are rampant. He was genuinely abused. Now keep in mind, he was unselfish. He'd given his life to the Corinthians sacrificially, and they're now falling in line with this hostility and starting to hate the one who loved them the most. And there was no physical pain that was as bad as this. Now let me digress a minute. Counselors' offices today are primarily filled with people who are there for these same kinds of reasons. Counselors' offices today are filled with people suffering from being misunderstood, being abused, being rejected, being unappreciated, being unloved, being unfulfilled. That is replete in our culture. 
That's why people go to see the counselor. Because their parents don't understand them. Their husband, their wife doesn't understand them. Because nobody cares. Because nobody loves them. Because they're misunderstood. And it goes on and on and on. Why? Because people have the greatest capacity to hurt us. Much greater than any object. Why? Because we were created for relationships. We were created for each other. And when those are unfulfilled, it tears at us at the deepest part of our being. That's why we always say when you fall in love with someone, you put yourself in a position for the deepest pain you've ever experienced. Potentially. Now, our dear Lord knew the depth of the pain of the Apostle Paul. There were other occasions when he felt that pain, and the Lord even appeared to him personally on four different occasions to comfort and encourage him. And each time the Lord came to Paul, it was not a public experience. It was a personal, private one for him alone. Nobody else knew the Lord was there until Paul told about it because the Lord wanted to sustain him and support him in times of tremendous, tremendous trial and trouble. Now, here is Paul in one of these times. He said, I think the lowest ebb of his spiritual experience, at least what we know of it in terms of what he's written, He's at a time when the people he's given the most to are returning hatred, hostility, and rejection. How does he handle it? How does he deal with it? You need to know how because it's going to be the way it is in life. Let me give you some principles. Principle number one. God humbles his children by means of suffering. God humbles his children by means of suffering. Verse 7. Verse 7. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation. For this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, to keep me from exalting myself. Why had God allowed this to come into the life of Paul? Here was a faithful man, the greatest Christian perhaps that ever lived. Here was a man who was totally sacrificial, totally spiritually minded, virtuous, righteous, godly, walking in the spirit, not in the flesh. This is the paragon of Christian virtue, and he's got trouble in his life. Let the health, wealth, prosperity, gospel people get a good dose of that reality. Here is the man who lives Christianity to the hilt, and he has got tremendous difficulty. Why? He says in verse 7, because God is keeping me from what? Exalting myself. If it all goes too well, we become proud. And Paul says, look, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation. Well, what does he mean by that? Well, I mean, he's, he's been given all these revelations. I mean, he wrote at least 13 epistles in the New Testament all of them revelation from God through the Spirit to him. Not only that, there were those four times when the resurrected Jesus appeared to him personally. He wasn't attending a meeting where Jesus showed up and he was one of many. No, four times Jesus came out of glory and visibly showed up to meet Paul to encourage him in a time of dire distress. Extraordinary. 
I mean, he truly could go on the road and say, I am the man who, who has seen Jesus four times. You know something? He never appeared to anybody else. Once. Did you get that? After his ascension, he never showed up to anybody once. Four times to Paul, Jesus personally appeared to comfort, encourage, strengthen. When you're given 13 epistles by the direct inspiration of the Holy Spirit and have four personal appearances by Jesus in your life, you've had some astounding revelations that could make you feel like you were the super-Christian of all time, right? Could make you proud. For this reason, because Paul still had his human flesh, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself. The first principle to note, young people, is this, that the more privileged you are, the more God may need to bring into your life the kind of difficulty that breaks you, that humbles you. When I ask the Lord why He brings people into my life like that, who grieve my heart, who break my heart, who turn out to be disloyal, people for whom I have made sacrifices, people to whom I have given all I have, people in whose lives I have poured the best of what I have to give, who then turn on me. Why does that happen? I am reminded of the fact that because of the surpassing greatness of God's goodness in my life, lest I become enamored with my own exaltation for having been so blessed, the Lord has very, very penetrating ways of crushing me. When you realize in your life there are myriads of people who have been blessed by your life and that you've accumulated a following of sorts of people who, who tend to elevate you, the Lord has to bring into your life some people who are His instruments to deflate you, to keep you from exalting yourself. If humility, and it is, is the number one Christian virtue, if being poor in spirit is basic, if not thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to think, is significant, if look, looking not on your own things but on the things of others is the way to live, if having the humility of the mind of Christ is essential, then expect to be humbled. And if the most devastating, heart-rending, breaking, crushing things that can happen in your life will come to you through people who will be disloyal to you, then expect it, because that's one way God will keep your perspective. So, verse 7 he says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me. By whom? Take a guess. By God. By the way, this gift was unsolicited. He didn't want it, but he got it. You say, well, maybe Satan gave it to him. No, Satan wouldn't give anything to you that would make you what? Humble. Be counterproductive. Satan wouldn't give you that. Satan is not interested in humbling you. So next time somebody betrays you, if you've been uniquely blessed by God, and all of a sudden somebody to whom you've given much turns on you, don't look at it as if Satan is the one really behind that. That is God behind that, and God is doing that to humble you. Follow along. Satan is involved, but it's coming under the control of God. There was given me by God, look at this, a thorn in the flesh. How many different viewpoints have you heard about the thorn in the flesh? Let me give you a very simple thing, all right? The word thorn here does not mean the thorn on a rose bush. It's not a little tiny thing. Paul is not saying, oh, I've had so many revelations that God had to give me this little thorn. It just pricked my little finger. What? That would be insignificant. 
I'm not talking about that. The word here for thorn is the word in the Greek for a stake. It means a sharpened wooden shaft, like a spear. It's not something you scratch your finger with. It's something you impale someone on. This is big time. He's not saying, because of my vast revelations, the Lord stuck me with a little thorn. No, no, no. This is not a little deal. This is a big deal. And it's, it should read, a stake, not in the flesh, for the flesh. Why? Why does the flesh need to be impaled? Because the flesh tends to exalt itself, right? My flesh wants to exalt me. And so along comes a stake to impale my flesh. That's the idea. This is a major infliction, not a minor one, to control fleshly tendencies to be proud and boastful. Now he further describes it, interesting, verse 7, as a messenger from Satan. Hmm. So Satan is involved, sure. Sure, all, all that kind of wicked, evil, disloyal, betrayal, hostility, envy, jealousy that made the person turn on you comes out of the kingdom of darkness. But it operates under the purview of God who allows it to happen for holy purposes. You understand that? Very important concept. Very important. It is a messenger of Satan. People say, well, what is it? What was this thing that impaled his flesh to keep him humble? What was this messenger of Satan? Some people say, oh, he had an eye disease. You heard that? He had an eye disease. Some people say he had malaria. Some people said it was he was so, he was so absolutely homely. I've heard that. Such an ugly guy. But everywhere he went, people said, yuck, what an ugly guy. And it was just that that just kept, you know, pushing him down. No. I'm not talking about eye disease. Not talking about malaria. Not talking about the fact that he was, you know, ugly. How do you know what he's talking about? Well, very simple. Take the word messenger. The word messenger is used 188 times in the New Testament. Now, I'll give you a little study in Greek usage. 188 times in the New Testament, the word messenger appears. Listen to this. In all the 187 other times, it always means a person. Always. Either an angelic person or a human person. Always a person. Never eye disease, never a thing, never a disease, never an object, never an event. It is always a person. You know what the word is in the Greek? Angelos. Translated angel or messenger. Always a person. What do you have here then? You have a person in the Corinthian church leading a rebellion against the apostle that is breaking his heart, that is literally impaling his flesh on a stake because it makes him face the fact that no matter how hard he works, no matter how gifted he is, no matter how blessed he is, he cannot gain control of those people in that church who have turned against him. It's a major, major trauma. It's heart-wrenching, heartbreaking. This is a person. A person. Best to see it as the ringleader of the Corinthian opposition. Sure, he was serving Satan in attacking Paul. 
but he was a person. And it was one great area of reality. Paul had to face the fact, look, I've given my best, I've given my all, and with all my eminent gifts and all the blessing of God, I don't always succeed. And that just impales the flesh. You have to face failure. You face hostility. You face rebellion. I'll never forget a Jewish guy came to see me one day. He was a professor of philosophy at UCLA and a surfer. Those were the two things in his world. He was a very good surfer and apparently a good professor of philosophy with a Ph.D. from a very elite Eastern University. He came to me and he said, you know, he said, I want to know about Christianity. And he, he came and we talked and he received Christ. It's very unusual, a Jewish philosophy professor. And he said, I, I want you to disciple me. So I met with him every Tuesday for six months at six o'clock in the morning. Tuesday after Tuesday after Tuesday for a couple of hours. And I taught him and I taught him and I taught him the word of God. And one day, I'll never forget it, I was sitting in my office and he said, well, he said, I, I, I want to tell you thank you for all you've told me, but I'm not coming back anymore. I found another church. And he went off to a liberal seminary and became an Episcopalian rector. Denies the inerrancy and authority of the scriptures. No matter how eminently successful you think you are, there are always those occasions in life when, for the sake of impaling your flesh, a messenger comes along from Satan to destroy your confidence. We all experience that. But the bottom line is, God uses that kind of suffering to humble us, and if humility is the supreme Christian virtue, then we ought to applaud the process, even though it's very painful. Would you notice in verse 7 also it says, that this messenger of Satan was sent to buffet me. Not buffet, same spelling, different concept. To buffet. You know what the word means? Very strong. Torment me. It's the word for torment in Matthew 26, uh, in Matthew 26, 67, and, and, and Mark 14, 65, it's used of the soldiers who punched Jesus in the face. This messenger came along and just pounded me in the face, just tormented me. Paul uses the same word in 1 Corinthians 4.11, a physical abuse. The, the, the root of the word is knuckles. This thing came along and just pounded me with knuckles in the face. Why does God allow it? End of verse 7. To keep me from exalting myself. Young people, trials have many purposes. One of them is to make us humble. To make us humble. So what do you do? God wants to make you humble. You bless him for the things that humble you. You bless him for the things that humble you. Second principle. God is the only one to whom you can go in the suffering. God uses the suffering to humble you. Principle two, God is the only one you can go to in the suffering. Verse eight, where does he go? Who does he go to? Does he find some counselor somewhere? No. Where does he go? Verse eight, concerning this, I entreated the Lord three times that it might depart from me. The man knew the place to go. The place to go was to the Lord who was in charge of all of this. There's a right place to go. In the time of your greatest need and your deepest pain and your severest trial and the greatest failures of life and the most painful rejections, you go not to Timothy, not to Titus, not to Silas. You go to God. So Paul did. When the delight of his life was gone, when the joy of his service was lost. He didn't seek a formula. 
He didn't seek a therapy to fix it. He didn't seek a technique. He didn't seek human wisdom. He went to the God who controls all the circumstances of life. The word entreated here is used frequently in the Gospels of the sick who came to Jesus and pleaded with him to be healed. He pleaded with the Lord on three separate occasions. Three separate occasions. Because he knew the Lord was the only one who could sustain him in the midst of the suffering. He was persistent. He met all the conditions of persistent prayer. I'm sure he prayed in faith. By the way, it's important to note he didn't rebuke Satan. He didn't bind Satan. He went to the only one who can deal with Satan and control him. And what did he ask? Very simple request, that it might depart from me. Lord, could you please take this away? Get rid of it. Get it out of my life. He didn't blame the man who was leading the parade of hostility against him. He didn't blame the devil. He went to God because he knew it was all under God's control. For God controls men and devils. And we, we have to learn sometimes, young people, not to go to lesser sources. Listen to this. Our deepest pain, our severest trials, should drive us to the supreme source, right? The greater the problem the greater the need for God. And when you go off to some other source, you short-circuit God's intention of that deep pain, which is to drive you to Him. Paul knew that. doesn't mean you don't want help from others, but you want help from others who will help you to move toward God. He faced his greatest trial realizing that the only sufficiency would be in God. Principle number three. God alone will provide grace sufficient for the trial. What did God say to him? Verse 9. He said to me, on all three occasions, perfect tense, the standing answer was always this. My grace is sufficient for you. Now get this, very important. He didn't say, okay, 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 I'll, I'll, I'll take the pain away. No. By the way, after three times, Paul dropped the request and accepted the answer. And God's answer was not by removing the pain. God's answer was by increasing the grace to endure it. Now, you need to listen carefully because this is the heart of it. God didn't remove the pain. He increased the enduring grace. Well, we say, why didn't he remove the pain? Because the pain was part of a process of humility that is essential. So he just increased the grace to sustain the process. He gave relief, not by removal, but by grace, to be able to cope with it. God's answer is the cornerstone of Christian living. This is the heart of all Christian living. You're going to have difficulty. You're going to have trouble. You're going to have temptation. You're going to have pain in life. It is inevitable. And it is, listen to this, it is purposeful in that it produces humility and in the midst of it when you cry out to God for deliverance he may choose not to deliver you but to let that humbling process move on but he will provide for you the sustaining grace in the midst of the process that's what you're looking for a wise Christian is not looking for the elimination of the humbling process he is looking for the increase of sufficient grace so that the process can be endured effectively.
My grace is arcade, enough, sufficient. He'll provide sufficient grace. The word grace, charis, is used 155 times in the New Testament. It means a favor bestowed, a generous gift given. In the biblical sense, it's a dynamic force that applies blessing and power to our lives when we need it. Grace to save us, grace to keep us, grace to enable us, grace to deliver us, grace to sanctify us, grace to glorify us. It is not inert, it is not static, it is a dynamic force, a dynamic power that moves into our lives, enabling us to overcome anything. Luke said the early church had abundant grace. John said that in Christ we have the fullness of grace. Paul said we stand in grace and have the riches of his grace. James said he gives a greater grace. Peter called it the multiplied, multicolored, multifaceted, manifold grace of God. And when you think about the fact that the Bible says it is abundant, it is full, it is rich, it is manifold, it is greater, you know that God doesn't skimp on it, right? He doesn't skimp on it. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 9.14, it says it is a surpassing grace. It surpasses any trouble, any problem that we have. So in the midst of our trials, we look not for the process to end, lest we be left in our pride, but we look for the sustaining grace in the midst of the process. It's part of embracing the humbling experiences of life like a friend. It's taken me a long time to learn that. Not to retaliate in anger or hostility when trouble comes, but to embrace it as part of God's process. We, we have sufficient grace. There's nothing the world has to offer. Nothing to, the world has to offer at all in that process. There's nowhere to turn. There's no place to go except to God. Think of it this way. Isn't it amazing? I wrote this down. I want to read it to you. Isn't it amazing that though we have utterly sufficient and sovereign God, who works all things powerfully and providentially according to his flawless will for our good and his glory and gives us always all we need. And though we have a sufficient word from God in Scripture that is perfect, restoring the soul, making wise the simple, rejoicing the heart, enlightening the eyes, enduring forever and producing complete righteousness. And though we have the pure wisdom from above, confounding all the wisdom of men and reducing it to infantile foolishness, and though we have the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom all fullness dwells, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, in whom we have all things pertaining to life and godliness and have become partakers of the divine nature, and through whom we can do all things, and though we have the blessed, mighty Holy Spirit living in us, filling us with all strength in the inner man, so that we can do exceeding abundantly above all we can ask or think, and though we have all sufficient grace, when trouble comes, somebody tells us to turn to the friends of Freud. Why? What do they have to tell us? We are enamored by broken cisterns that hold no water, and we turn our backs on the fountain of living waters. I'm thankful for gifted, godly men and women who come alongside us when we're in these times and help us to find our immense riches in the sufficient grace of God. But that's the only place to go. That's the only source. Fourth principle. 
God perfects power out of that suffering. God perfects power out of that suffering. In verse 9 he says, power is perfected in weakness. You say you want to be a powerful person? I don't know about you, but I'd rather not be an impotent person. I'd like my life to count. I'd like my life to have an effect on the world, to change people for God's glory. I want to be a powerful person in the sense that my life has a dynamic force in it for change in the lives of other people. And if I'm going to be a powerful person, there is the necessity that I be a weak person. Did you get that? Listen to this. No one is too weak to be powerful, but most people are too strong. Too strong in self-will. He says your power is perfected and we can say, well, why, God, do I have to be humbled? Because it's when you come to the end of your own strength and when you come to bankruptcy in your own abilities that you are then powerful because it's the power of God moving through you. When a Christian loses all confidence in human ability to deal with difficulties, when we lose all of our confidence to affect change in others' lives by our own strength and our own power and our own ability, when we become weak and destitute and without resources in ourselves, we totally cast ourselves on the power of God, then we become effective. See, the grace of Christ is sufficient to take you through the process. It strips you of self-confidence, eliminating your strength, making you weak, and in the moment of personal weakness, you become available to the power of God. God perfects power through that suffering. So what's Paul's response? Look what he says in verse 9. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. You know what he says? I don't want to fix my trouble. I don't want to fix it. I don't want to run off and have somebody fix it. I want to embrace it gladly, joyously. I don't love the abuse. I don't like a messenger from Satan, and I hate Satan. But I see it as a means by which God is humbling me to release his power in my life. So let it happen. You know, I really get weary, and I have to confess it to you. I get weary of people who expect everything to be perfect. It's painful in the church to have to deal with these people that complain about everything. Everything. They expect their little world to be perfect. Same thing here. I understand when, when some of you come to me and you have legitimate concerns on your heart. But there are always discontent students, just like there are discontent people in the church, and just like sometimes we all show that discontent, where they want everything just the way they want it. And you know what that says to me? God, don't you ever invade my life with anything that might make me humble so that I might become powerful. Just leave me impotent and selfish and proud. What a terrible way to live your life. You better learn how to embrace the small inconveniences of life that you might have an, a powerful life. A life that doesn't depend upon its own resources. I've learned to embrace that. Bring it on, God, whatever it takes. I remember years ago praying over and over, God, whatever it takes in my life to make me a powerful tool in your hand, do it. There have been many times when I've said, Lord, stop. 
That's far enough. I understand that, too. But it's a wearying thing not to have this mentality. Everybody wants somebody to fix everything. Paul says, don't fix it. I boast about what crushes me. Then the power of Christ dwells in me. And that word dwell is wonderful. Pitch its tent. I want the power of Christ to pitch its tent. What does that mean? Settle down and live there. Take up residence. His weakness was not self-induced. That's false humility. His weakness was God-given. And then God gave him the sufficient grace to endure it in order that he might be crushed and broken and out of that would come strength. So when you have the deepest pain in life, people criticize you, misjudge you, misevaluate you, misrepresent you, tell lies about you, and when you pour your life into people who turn their back on you, the pain of unfulfilled relationships and unsatisfied desires, and you suffer most from those you love the most. Remember, the world can't fix it. The world can't fix it. Shouldn't fix it. Why? God's using it to humble you. God's using it to draw you to Him as the resource. God's using it to display His sufficient grace. God's using it to make you a powerful person. So you come to that final verse, verse 10. Therefore, I'm well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecution, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. Wow. That's the heart of Christian living. Can you get to that point? Boy, can, can you get there? I don't, I don't hear anybody preaching that message, do you? I don't hear any of that being preached. Lord, make us weak. Lord, bring on the insults and the distresses and the persecutions and the difficulties for Christ's sake. Why would he say that? End of the verse. For when I'm weak, what? Then I'm strong. That's how we're to live. You'll find sufficient grace for that. I asked for prominence. Someone said, God gave me humiliation. I asked for power. He gave me weakness and I became usable. His grace is sufficient. Don't worry about that. Just go to Him for it. Don't go somewhere else. There's plenty for you. Spurgeon said he was riding home one day after a heavy day's work and he was feeling depressed. He was feeling stripped. And he thought about the verse, My grace is sufficient for you. And in his classic, inimitable genius, he looked down at the Thames River, which was flowing by, and he compared himself to a little fish. And he imagined a little fish apprehensively swimming through the Thames and saying to himself, I, I, I better not be drinking too much water. I might drink the Thames dry. And hearing Father Thames reply, Drink away, little fish. My stream is sufficient for you. And then he thought of a little mouse, he said, in the granaries of Egypt, who was, uh, at the time of Joseph, dwelling in one of those silos, saying to himself, 
if I keep eating this corn every day, I'll exhaust this whole supply and starve to death. And Joseph comes along and sees the little mouse and says, Fear not, little mouse. The granaries can handle you. And then he said, I thought of a mountain climber who would climb to the tip of the highest peak and look into the vast, endless universe and say to himself, mm, I'm exhausted, but I better not breathe too deeply. I might exhaust all this air. To which the Creator says, Breathe away, O oh man. My atmosphere is sufficient for you. You'll never exhaust God's supply. Learn to tap it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again this morning for your word and how it penetrates our hearts. Father, thank you for giving us sufficient grace for everything and help us to turn to the grace that is available, knowing that our sufficiency is from God. May the troubles of our lives, the deep and painful things, turn us to you, not to others, that we may in that humbling process, sustained by sufficient grace, come to the end of our human resources and come to the beginning of our spiritual power. To this end we pray for the glory of our Christ. Amen.